This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and join today. I'm your host, Jay Scott, and I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field experiencing God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. Welcome to the Jay Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we're very fortunate to have an eight-time world champion elk caller, Corey Jacobson from Boise, Idaho. I have known Corey for some time and have always admired uh, the person that he is, and obviously the elk caller that he is. Uh, Corey has is the owner and founder of Extreme Elk Magazine, and it is a ph- phenomenal publication. And uh, Corey is an avid, avid elk hunter, archery elk hunter. Uh, Corey stays in shape all year long. Uh, I, I'm happy to call him a friend and uh, proud of his accomplishments. Uh, the listeners, you guys are going to get to hear the, one of the best, if not the best, elk caller that's probably ever walked the planet. Uh, and Corey, being a humble guy that he is, is probably smiling right now, thinking, "Goodness, Jay, what, what, what are you, what are you building this up to?" But really, an eight-time world champion uh, to be able to get to talk to him on the phone and uh, get some of his insight on archery elk hunting and and elk calls themselves and and comparing competition calling to elk calling in the woods we're in for a real treat this morning Corey, how are you doing well i'm good i'm I'm glad this isn't a video podcast because my face would be bright red right now but i appreciate the, <laughs> appreciate the compliments and the introduction well i've i've been a fan for years uh actually as you know i've been fortunate to judge the contest uh i believe three years and Several of those years, I believe you won the contest, uh, and you're always up there, right up towards the top. Um, you come from a, uh, obviously a, a lineage of, of elk hunters, and um, obviously I know your your own sons are uh, uh, blowing elk calls in, in the junior and peewee division and what have you. And um, tell me a little bit of background on yourself, uh, kind of maybe. Uh, you know, you talk to me about your family and where you live and maybe your upbringing as an elk hunter and how you got started. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I grew up in, in northern Idaho in just a small logging community, and my dad's been an elk hunter all his life. And so it's just, you know, I think that's the neat thing about growing up in an elk hunting family is it's it's just passed on. It's just a part of who we are, and it was it's something that's been a part of my life for all of my life. And I was fortunate I grew up where we literally could walk out our back door onto, you know, state and and federal land and hunt right literally out our back door. There were times when I wasn't old enough to drive that I just grabbed my bow and and take off walking from the house. And of course, success was few and far between back in those days because I was still learning. But uh, growing up like that, I just, the experiences can't be replaced, you know, just uh, being able to learn at a young age from all of the failures and mistakes my dad was a was an outfitter so growing up he was gone you know a lot of the lot of the hunting season and he might get home for a day or two at the very end and take me out and try to give me a crash course on on what I'd done wrong the three or four weeks leading up to that but you know it's it's something that those experiences were very natural and very easy and very convenient for me growing up and they led into into a passion you know and it's something that I can't imagine not having an elk tag in my pocket every fall and, and be able to go out and chase them. And, you know, you mentioned my, my children. I've got two boys and a girl, and, and they love the outdoors. They're, you know, it's kind of that same thing. I always, my wife always tells me I've brainwashed them into, into being elk hunters. But <laughs> it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's who I am, and it comes across, and they get to see that firsthand, and they're passionate. Whenever your children take on a passion for something that you like, it's it's exciting and and it's neat to see them grasp that. And, you know, when it comes to competition calling or hunting or anything, uh, they're right there and, and excited for it. Yeah, and, and talking about your kids there, um, when, when they first started showing an interest in and in wanting to put an elk call in their mouth and, and what have you, um, how did you um, nurture that? Um, did you basically just let them put it in and start making sounds 
Um, I'm sure each one of them has their own personality and own style of the way they like to learn. Did you kind of let them run on it or did you, were you were you right there with them trying to help them make the sounds the best they could or how 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 is that transformation? You know, I think like a lot of parents, my my kids were able to make elk sounds before they could probably talk. You know, we were watching hunting videos or whatever it was and they knew what an elk sounded like, so we were constantly and it wasn't for us it wasn't what's a chicken say or what's a cow say, it's what's an elk say and so you know, before they could talk, they could make cow calls and bugles with their voice. And so I usually, I wait until they're probably eight or nine to start them on a diaphragm elk call. Just, you know, their voices at a young age, they can really scream. So they get that really natural, cool elk sound just with their voice. And, and so we run with that and I try, try to, you know, help them hear what a real elk sounds like and then they can mimic that. And it's amazing how quickly kids can pick up on mimicking sounds and and so basically you know they get that the the sound the intensity all of that with their voice and then when we transition to a diaphragm it's it's really a pretty natural transition for them and I know a lot of people struggle with getting the right size diaphragm for their kids but I just take a regular one and throw it in and you know get them making sounds and then they walk around annoying everybody for a couple days and pretty soon they're (laughs) they're making good elk sounds so it's, you know, and their and their mom, I'm sure, just shakes her head, going, "Goodness, what have I done?" Well, it, it was a, it was a tough, you know, competition for me in the house trying before the kids were really bugling. It was me against her, and, and of course, you know, she's going to win that battle. But now that I've got three other elk callers on my side, it's four against one, and so yeah, it's there. There are times that she goes and locks herself in the bedroom so we can practice our elk calls. Yeah, I'm sure, and 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 buying her a good set of uh, headphones is probably something you do every year to to make sure she can tune you guys out at some time. But I, uh, in knowing her and knowing your family, I know it's you know elk hunting is you know completely intertwined throughout your whole existence, and um, I just want to say you know kudos to you on that, and it's exciting to see you know the passion that you guys have. Um, so I want to compliment you on that. You know, I want to ask you, um, tell me about, we're going to get into a lot of the elk calling and stuff, but first, um, tell me about the creation of extreme elk, uh, magazine and, um, the successes that you've had, uh, with the magazine. Uh, you have a very big following. Um, talk to me a little bit about that. You know, it, <laughs> I don't even know where to start with Extreme Elk Magazine. Dirk Durham's a partner in the magazine. We went to high school together. Um, I think our first meeting, we met uh, in September in a class and talked about elk hunting. We both loved it, and we went out elk hunting that night. Um, so our first day after we met, we, we went elk hunting, and we've continued that relationship. You know, So we're we're good friends. We love elk hunting together. We're both passionate about it. And it's something I can remember a discussion, uh, you know, like my sophomore, junior year in high school with him about elk hunting magazines and about, you know, he loved elk hunting magazines and just felt that they were full of um, sales pitches and all commercialized. And that was, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And so we, I can remember sitting on a hillside one night elk hunting, and we couldn't get any elk to bugle down in this big hole, and we had driven up there after school. And so we were just kind of sitting there chatting, and he said, we need, to, we need to do an elk magazine. And this was in, I would guess, 1990, 1991. And so we both you know, sat there and daydreamed, neither one of us having a clue about life in general or business or anything like that. And so, you know, as life, we, we both went on and, and had our different careers and families and all of that and it was something that you know every few years it would it would come up did you see this article man we should do a magazine and and really what it came down to was we're just a couple of of backwoods redneck elk hunters that are passionate about it and love elk hunting and we wanted to be able to you know we we felt that there was an audience out there of of like-minded people that just daydream about elk hunting all year while they're sitting at their day job wishing they could be elk hunting instead of working but knowing they have to work to be able to afford to go elk hunting and you know just that that public land do-it-yourself blue-collared elk hunter which is what we are is uh is kind of the foundation for the magazine and you know there's I, i guess to make sure that the message isn't a you know a segregating message that we aren't trying to say public land is better than private or do-it-yourself is better than guided or anything. 
we're just trying to, to portray what we know and the style of hunting we do in a way that, that others that hunt the same style can relate to. And I really think that, that we're, at least we're trying to do it in a way that, you know, no matter what your hunting style is, you're going to be able to relate to it because there's the passion that comes across. And that's our tagline for the magazine is your hunt, your adventure. And we kind of leave it open-ended like that so that it's, you know, you define your hunt, you define your success. And we focus more on, on that adventure and the, the experience rather than, you know, I shot my bull at 680 yards with a rifle or my bull scored, you know, 381 and 6.8. So we don't focus so much on the, the comparative details of the hunt, more on just that passion. And, and that's, that's basically our platform and, and how it all came about. Sure. And I mean, if anybody uh, thumbs through any issues of the magazine, they're going to see real quick that you guys absolutely love what you're doing and, and have an extreme passion for it. And, you know, it bleeds out on the pages there for sure. Um, so my hat's off to you for uh, doing such a good job with the magazine. Um, for my listeners out there that, that have not uh, heard of Extreme Elk Magazine or don't know how to get it, could you give me uh, the best way that they can look up Extreme Elk Magazine to order a subscription or take a look at it? Yeah, absolutely. Our website's just extremeelk.com. And on the website, we've got, you know, we've got teasers from all the past issues. So they can go through the archives and take a look at each issue and see what articles and stories were in it. Uh, we're very active on, on Facebook. We're getting a lot more digital content on our website as far as blog material and, and different things. And so I think going to the website's a good, you know, a good place to start. And you can subscribe right there. It's 19.95 a year, so not overly expensive. Half a tank of gas will get you a year's worth of the magazine and, and uh, you know, we put it out, it's quarterly, and I think that's probably some of the feedback we get is it's not often enough. And for a passionate elk hunter, you know, if we got a, an elk hunting magazine once a month, it wouldn't be enough. But for us, it's yeah. it's trying to keep that quality content, not overdoing it, not becoming redundant. And, you know, at the end of three months, the, the subscribers are eager for a new issue and, and ready for it. So they're looking forward to it. And I think another thing to note there, your partner, Dirk Durham, uh, speaking of yourself being an eight-time world champion elk caller, uh, Dirk, I believe, has won four or five times. I, I don't know the exact time, but he has won a bunch of elk calling titles himself. So, you know, definitely from the hardcore aspect of two incredible elk callers, uh, you know, it's just it would be hard to find any more qualification qualified uh, individuals to be talking about elk hunting. So um, how is Dirk doing? I haven't seen him in a few years. He's great. We spent, uh, started, you know, beginning of December at the, at the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation convention down in Vegas, and we've been at shows about, well, it seems like every other weekend since then, but uh, it's fun because we get to, we get to hit the road and drive to Sacramento or Denver or Salt Lake or wherever we're going and just, you know, be able to sit in the truck for six to 12 hours, however long the drive is, and talk about elk hunting plans, talk about, you know, direction of the magazine plans, future plans, and, and all of that. And uh, we're excited. We're hunting Wyoming. We drew the general tag in Wyoming again this year, so we're heading back there together in September, and that's always a fun hunt. But yeah, Dirk's, Dirk's one of those guys that, that, like you said, he's, in my mind, Dirk's the best caller in the world. And uh, to be able to hunt with him, you know, I love to... I last year we were hunting together in Montana and I just sat back and listened to Dirk calling in this bull. And I just, I had more fun listening to that interaction and thought, you know, there's nothing better in the world than to sit here and listen to the best caller in the world call to these elk and, and have that front seat there on the, the front row. But uh, yeah, Dirk, you'd mentioned he's won, I think five world championships and he's won in the, in the men's division. And I believe it was back in, I want to say 1998 or so. Dirk and I both competed in the men's division, and for a couple of years there, we'd went back and forth between, you know, he winning and me getting second, or me winning and him getting second, and uh, it was in Portland after the contest, I think I won that year, and he got second, and, and we agreed we weren't going to compete against each other anymore, just because it was, 
you know, I didn't want to take a chance of getting beat by him and, and I think <laughs> him likewise. And so I said, well, I don't care. We, you know, neither of us were forced any direction. We were just, I think I was still in college at that time. And so we weren't forced to go to the pros. And I said, I don't care. Where do you want to go? And he's like, you go to the pros. I'm going to, I'll call them the men's. And so we split up back then, which division we were calling in. And, and we've done it pretty much every year since that way. So I went to the professional division. He's calling in the men's division. And I have no doubt that if he was in the professional division, he would he would have won as many or more times as I have. Yeah, both of you are fantastic callers. Um, I want to, you mentioned that you both drew uh, your Wyoming permits. Uh, will you also hunt uh, in Idaho? And tell me about, uh, you know, you, you obviously try and draw permits across the West. And I know you've had some success in in uh, Arizona, you've had some success in, in Utah and, and other states. Um, tell me about the heart of your elk hunting. Uh, does it always lie in Idaho? Um, and do you hunt Idaho every year? And, and, and maybe tell me a little bit about hunting Idaho public land bulls, um, maybe compared to some of the other states. For sure. Yeah. You know, and that's I grew up hunting Idaho uh, when I moved to Boise in 1998. You know, I had to learn everything all over. It was a new area down here. I was six hours from home. It was too far to, for me to go back home and, and be able to get, you know, weekend hunts in, which, you know, it's I was, I was working at a technology company. I had two weeks vacation a year, so, you know, I really only had one week to go elk hunting and then, and then weekends. So I found a place that was a little closer, scouted it, learned it, and fell in love with it and it was it was a great area unfortunately between hunting pressure and forest fires and the introduction of wolves and everything is, that's that's happened it's been kind of the perfect storm to create a, a really poor hunting area and so i've actually hunted idaho twice in the last five years and one of those times was in 2013 we hunted eight days and we only called in two elk in those eight days fortunately we shot both of them but, uh, you know, for me, I, I would much rather go out and call in a five-point bull every single day and have those experiences and then shoot a five-point on the last day than hunt for eight days and, and, you know, call in maybe a bigger bull if that's the only bull. I just, I love the interaction. I love the, the adventure and, and the excitement of the hunt. And it's just, in the area I hunt in Idaho, it's, it's not there. The area is just not producing anymore. So I guess I look forward to more. Um, finding new areas, and there are areas in Idaho that we're we're branching out and scouting, and and eventually we'll have it we'll have a new area that's productive. Um, you know, my draw my draw I guess process. I don't like waiting. I'm very impatient, so waiting for you know 10 or 12 years for a tag is I'll do it, and it's part of my game plan. But I want to I want to be able to hunt every year, and I'd like to be able to hunt you know two hunts every year. That's typically what I focus on is trying to to get two elk tags a year and you know whether that's over the counter in Colorado or a, a general tag in Wyoming which usually takes you know one or two years to draw or uh, you know Montana's got their basically over the counter tags now because they have leftovers so between between those three states and, and with Idaho kind of as a backup it's pretty easy to get a, a couple decent tags every year and and get excited about going hunting. But yeah, you mentioned Arizona and Utah. I think I'm up to eight points in Arizona again. And uh, Utah, I, I drew a tag with 10 points. And with the the number of non-resident tags they have and the number of applicants they have, I'm not even planning on putting back in for points there. But uh, Arizona, I've been fortunate. I drew the first tag with four points. And the next time I drew a three, and now I'm up to eight. So I'm feeling a little bit sad about not drawing. But <laughs> ready to go back so, to Arizona for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, tell me about Wyoming. Uh, when you guys went there last year, um, was it last year that you went, Corey? Uh, last time we hunted was two years ago. So Two yeah. years ago. Okay, so you're going back. Um, when do the season dates start, um, and what is your plan as far as um, are you going to go for the opener? Are you going to wait till they're – you know, really bugling or are they firing away as soon as you get there? Tell me a little bit about how that hunt went a couple years ago and what you expect for it this year. Yeah, so this will be actually the fourth time I've hunted a general tag in Wyoming. Uh, the first time I went there blind, walked up, and by 5 o'clock the first day, uh, I had called in eight bulls into bow range. 
and I ended up shooting a, a five point that day. I had limited time. I think there's only four days left in the season. I'd hunted. It was actually the year that I hunted uh, Colorado, I believe, on a over-the-counter tag. And uh, went back the next year with Dirk, and we both shot really nice six points and had a really great hunt. But we noticed towards the end of the hunt, uh, we were hunting the last part of September, and towards the end of the hunt, the bulls were a lot less vocal, uh, a little bit tougher to call in. And so we always said, let's hunt it earlier, let's hunt it earlier. Well, this last time we went, we ended up uh, hunting it the last week again, and the bulls were just tough to call in. They were they were vocal, but they were continually moving. We couldn't get them to stop. We couldn't call them in. And so it kind of solidified, we need to get here earlier. So this year, we're going to hunt probably around like the 4th to the 12th time frame, a little bit earlier. There's a rifle deer season that opens in a couple of the areas that uh, it opens on September 15th. So our goal is to get in there before the rifle shots start going off and maybe wisen the elk up a little bit. Hope we can, anytime we can find dumber elk to hunt, it's going to be, an, <laughs> it's going to be to our advantage because they've, uh, they've got the upper hand on us from the beginning. Yeah, they're, they're amazing animals. So on those hunts, will you guys um, backpack in or will you, um, uh, hunt out of your trucks or will you ride horses or, or what is, what is the game plan for this year in Wyoming? So on almost all of our hunts, we do a combination of, of truck camping and backpack camping. We don't get super hardcore in the areas that we hunt, you know, putting uh, eight days worth of camp on your back and going back in there. There's just too many variables between, you know, wolves and other hunters and elk movements and everything you know, we can get back into an area and take a day to hike in there and get set up and take a day or two scouting to, to see if the elk are there. And if they aren't there, we've wasted over half of our hunt. And so typically what we do is we start off, you know, hunting from the truck and we hike back in. And we aren't, I mean, we'll go, there are days that we'll hike 12 to 14 miles uh, round trip coming back. And if we find elk back in six or seven miles, we aren't going to be doing that hike every day. But if we find them, then we'll grab, you know, two or three days worth of camp stuff, go back in there and and you know stay two or three nights to hunt we don't do the the long eight or ten day backpack hunts but it's definitely a one of the tools that we use to get back in and hunt a little bit farther off the roads nice um when you're when you're let's say let's just take this wyoming public land hunt um and you're going in fresh Corey. Uh, do you typically hunt with Dirk or do you guys split up and you go in one drainage and he goes in another? You know, that, that really depends. <laughs> I, <laughs> I've always, if it were me, I'd just follow Dirk around and ha just, uh, push the button and let him bugle and, and, and say, okay, I'll go after that one. Yeah, no, it, it actually <laughs> depends on whether or not I can get Dirk to wake up in the morning He's, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> no, he's he's an awesome hunting partner. Um, he likes to sleep in. He's not as much of a morning person as maybe I am, but uh, he's such a good caller that he's worth waiting a few minutes to, to get out of the sleeping <laughs> bag and, and get out there. No, we, we hunt together. It's uh, one of the things I've learned over the years is, is especially when it comes to calling elk, success rates go way up when you have somebody back behind calling for you. When you're trying to call by yourself, as much as I love the solitude, as much as I love, you know, just taking a day and going and being by myself and sitting on a ridge and, you know, just having that experience to myself, it's, uh, it's so much more, I guess, efficient and effective having a partner there to be able to call. And so we switch back and forth. One day it's, it's me on the calls and him on the shooting, and the next day we just switch. And, and having that, to be able to pull that bull through the setup with the collar back behind, is, it just increases the chances of being successful dramatically enough that that we're there to fill tags you know we've got six to eight days to fill two or three tags and we've got to be as efficient as we can so we, we definitely Absolutely. stick together and and i know having a good hunting partner i know what that's like i hunt with dark colburn a lot and you know i know the same as the case with you guys um you know you're working as one you're working as a team there is no uh, I and, 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 or us and them, there is no, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a team. It's, it's, it's not like that's my bull or that's his bull. It's, it's, that's our bull and let's get that bull killed and then we can move on to the next one. Um, tell me about when you're walking in, let's say it's the first morning, let's say you're hiking up the trail, 
what have you, you get to the basin and you get up there and it's quiet and let's say it's just breaking day. Um, what are you going to do to try and see what's around as far as location type bugle, cow call? What, what's the first thing you're going to do uh, if, if you're up in your basin? It's go time. Um, give me what give me a bugle or, or a cow call or whatever whatever the sequence you would do I want to hear that sure yeah and that's probably a good time to, to you know maybe mention my hunting style I'm very aggressive uh, very impatient and I live and die by the bugle it's uh, you know I'm with this being March Madness there are basketball teams that live and die by the three-point shot and when the three-point shots off you know they're they have a rough night it's kind of the same for me. I, I have a hard time adapting to other methods of hunting because there's so much thrill in that vocal interaction of calling an elk that I really don't, you know, I'll walk by eight bulls in a basin if they aren't bugling. I want to find a bull that's bugling. And, and I would say that in any unit you're hunting, if you're hunting during the month of September, somewhere in that unit, there is a bull that's bugling. And so my goal at that time becomes to find that bull that's bugling. So my my go-to calling sequence is really simple. Um, I don't get into, you know, the language of what the elk are trying to say. In my opinion, elk respond to two emotions. And if, when they call, they're either calling because they want to fight another bull or they want to breed a cow. You know, and that's their two main drivers during the month of September. So my goal is, as the hunter is try to become, get in that elk's head and, and think like an elk and try to play to one of those two emotions, whether I'm convincing him that I'm a cow that needs bread and he you know, is, is coming in based on that emotion, or whether I get close to him and challenge him and, and make him think that I'm a challenger and make him mad enough that he wants to come in and fight. Um, those are my two, two emotions I play to. And really, when we break it down like that, there's only a couple of calls that, that I need to use or that I do use. And one of those is location call. So you mentioned hiking into the base and we get up there and it's quiet. You know, what do we do to to start hunting that's that's when the hunt really starts i guess so i i typically start a location bugle just a simple bugle and i'll i'll demonstrate that here i don't, hope it doesn't blow out the microphones but here's the location bugle okay so it's just a, a couple notes hold that high note long it echoes out there into that basin and then i just sit there and listen and sometimes you know it's Early in the season, public land, elk might be a little call shy. It might take a couple of those to, to get a bull to respond. And when he does, it might be a, you know, I'm bedded down over here. I'm not interested. It might be a scream, round up the cows. He might be right there close. Whatever it is, all I'm trying to do is locate an elk. And if I can locate an elk that is that is vocally engaged with me, then I've got a chance of, of calling him in. And from there, that's that's when we start, you know, the, the process of, okay, how close can we get to him? Where's he at? What's he doing? Is he bedded down? Is he moving with cows? And uh, and my goal is always, once I locate that elk, to get in as close as I can to him. I just, it, it sounds simple, but if I can get close to that elk inside, you know, 100 to 150 yards, I, I'm very confident I can call that elk in. If I'm at three or 400 yards, if that elk's in the right mood and the setup's right, yeah, I might be able to, to coax him in, but it just it changes the game getting in close. So my goal is to locate an elk and then get in as close as possible to him. From there, it's you know a matter of, of one of those two emotions, either making him want to come in to, to that cow that's ready to be bred or making him want to come into that bull that's screaming in his face and wanting to fight. And if we get in that basin and nothing answers, like I mentioned, I, there, might, I, there might be six bulls there, and there might be fresh sign everywhere, but if there's not an elk answering, I'm going to head up the ridge and I'm going to get to the next vantage point. And I'm going to bugle down off that side and try to find a bull that's answering so I can move in and, and call him in. Okay, so in that scenario, uh, Corey, um, let's say that you bugled, nothing answered, Dirk didn't hear anything, you, you waited just a second. Are, are, do you wait a minute or two or you wait 30, 40 seconds um, and then... Obviously, you would you would do your bugle again, um, and now let's say a bull has answers and he's across the drainage. Um, you know, you have to go down and kind of up the other side to get to him. Um, what's what? Walk me through. Um, let's say the the wind's blowing from your left to your right. The bull's dead across the drainage, halfway up the other side. 
And, you know, it's, 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 uh, say a 10 minute type of walk across the drainage. Walk me through what you would do with that bull. Yeah. So, so going back to the beginning, we don't get an answer. I'll usually, you know, I'll throw out that location bugle. If I don't get an answer, I'll throw a couple of cow calls into my bugle tube just to really broadcast them out there that maybe that bull's looking for cows. You know, here's a bugle and he's not interested, but all of a sudden he hears there's cows in the drainage. He might respond. So I'll do the location bugle, nothing answers after a minute. I'll throw a couple of cow calls and I'll probably do that sequence two, maybe three times. So we're not spending more than four or five minutes in any location just trying to get that response. If the bull's not going to respond by then, he's not going to be as apt to to respond and to be as prone to coming into my calls. So once we do get that response, if the bull's across the drainage there, you know, 10 minute hike to him, I'll try to get him to respond once or twice. And again, that location bugle, there's no emotion in it. I'm not trying to fight. I'm not trying to call him in. I just, I want him to respond. And if I get two or three responses out of him, I can pinpoint, okay, he hasn't moved. He's, he's right there on that, you know, bench. Maybe that's where they're bedding or, you know, first time he bugled, he's in the bottom and now he's at the top of the ridge. He's probably got cows and they're moving to bedding area. We've got to really, you know, hustle to, to catch up to him. But if he's, if he's in that same spot, 10 minute hike away, uh, first thing I do is check the wind and mornings, you know, the wind's typically coming down the drainage thermals are pulling down just with the, the cool ground. And you've got until about the time the sun hits the hillside before the, the wind really starts switching. So if he's down the drainage and up the other side, I know I've got good wind at least till the sun gets up and, and warms up that side. So I can get underneath him and, and kind of go right up at him. If I'm at that transition point, though, where the wind's going to be swirling and stuff, I'll jump over four or 500 yards and go up another ridge parallel to him and get up on the same level and then come across to him because typically those thermals and the winds are going to be either going down the mountain or up the mountain, not, not so much side hill. If they're going side hill, it's because there's cloud cover or a storm coming or something crazy going on there, but just your standard thermals are usually up and down. So if it is a transition time, I'll get over parallel to him, climb up to that level and then move across that level. And that way, if the wind does switch, it usually switches up and down and it's not going to be quite as prone to, to blowing him out of there. Um, again, if it's middle of the day and the thermals are coming up, I'm going to have to circle all the way around, get clear up above him, and then drop down, uh, drop down on him because those elk they, they live and die by their noses. And if you can fool their nose, you can you can get close to an elk. But if you can't fool their nose, there's no getting close to them. And they can smell. I've seen elk windows from like seven or eight hundred yards away before down in the bottom of a drainage, wind blowing down. We're sitting there glassing them, thinking uh, we're we're far enough away. And all of a sudden, their heads come up and they look our direction. And they bust out of there. So wind is yeah. wind's critical as we're making that approach. Yeah, I mean that absolutely. You couldn't have said it any better. Um, but in in that scenario where the bull's halfway up the ridge. If if it's already warming up and you know that those thermals are going to change, you will, even as aggressive as you are, you will say, I'm not even going to go mess with him where he's at now. I'm going to circle around, get in a good spot before I even start to call to him. But if if I heard you right, and and the other scenario is the thermals are still coming downhill. It's still early enough. At that point, you're going to obviously go across to him and will you try and get on the same level with him or will you call from, will you be below him or would you rather be above him um, in, in the scenario that the wind is constant and blowing down the hill? Where do you want to be set up on that bull? Yeah, and that's that's a great question. It's something that took me a lot of years. In fact, you know, I, I credit you with, with uh helping me understand how I hunt elk because you did an article it's been probably I don't know eight or nine years ago and you called me and said what's your, your elk hunting style and I at that point I didn't know I didn't know what my elk hunting style was I hadn't processed it to the point it was kind of natural you know I just go out and do it and so I had to stop there and think what do I really do what is my process and I realized that there is a method and, and I do kind of the same thing every time but one of the things that I realized I was doing was getting on the same level as the elk. And, and it was subconscious at that point. Now it's it's almost a, a mandatory thing before I'll even start calling to them. I want to be on their level. And there's there's several reasons why. But a couple of the key ones are if you're below them or above them and the thermals switch. And they switch all during the day. I mean, the, even in the morning when it's cold, there will be a gust sometimes that pulls up. And when it switches, it usually reverses 180 degrees. And if I'm below them or above them, 
my, my chances of getting winded are super high. If I'm at the same level as them working side hill to them, I can take, I can, I can withstand some of those thermal changes without blowing the elk out of there, especially if I'm back 100 or 150 yards. So it gets rid of that variable to a degree. The other thing is an elk, when they come in, I had a lot of elk that used to come in above me and they would hang up at 100 or 120 yards. And what I realized is when you're up above, you can see down the hill a lot better. So if you're up on a knob looking down, you can see way down that hill and you can you can see what's down there. And when an elk gets there, he's looking for another elk that's bugling or cow calling to him. And he should be able to see that elk. And when he can't, he gets nervous. And so he's going to stand on that high point and wait until he sees something before he comes down farther. On the flip side, I had them hang up a lot of times coming up the hill. They wouldn't commit and come all the way up the hill. And, uh, you know, they're just at a physical disadvantage. When they're walking up that hill, especially when, when I'm aggressive bugling, wanting to fight that elk, he's thinking, hey, there's another 800-pound animal up here that's aggressive and wants to beat me up. I'm coming up the hill. He's going to come charging down and, and run me into the creek bottom. So, and, and what you mean by that is a weight advantage and leverage advantage of being uphill, just as if you and I were going to wrestle and, and I was above you, I have full weight advantage of my weight plus the gravity uh, 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 attacking you. The same thing is with an elk, correct? Absolutely, yeah. That bull's thinking, hey, there's an 800-pound animal up there with big antlers. And if I go charging up the hill, he can come running down and have that speed and that gravity and that weight and everything and, and basically run me right back down off the mountain. So. Yeah, it just I think it makes them more comfortable to come in from the same level uh, into a setup. It gets rid of some of their advantages that they would otherwise have if we were coming in from below or from above them. So getting on the same level is is uh, one of the things that, like like I'd mentioned, if that bull, if the thermals are going to change there, I'll take an extra half hour and go clear into the next drainage and come up behind on that ridge to get on his level and come across rather than risking going up there and, and having wind switch or something. Okay, and so let's let's say you've slid up there on his level, and let's say as you were moving in, in your 10 or 15, 20 minutes, whatever it took you to get over and get kind of level with him, let's say that he gave you one or two or three kind of courtesy bugles, kind of contact type bugles, not really aggressive or anything, but just enough for you to slide in there, and let's say you slide in there 80, 90, 100 yards from him. In that situation where you don't know if he has cows, you don't know if he's alone, but he has answered a couple times, what is your exact next move going to be once you've slid into position? Is it going to be a bugle or is it going to be a cow call? Yeah, so you got me really excited there just think, because that, that's a perfect situation. If you've got an elk located and he bugles two or three times on his own so you can really pinpoint as you're moving in exactly where he is, that element of surprise is so important trying to call in that elk. If I don't have to call the whole way in there and I can go inside 100 yards without ever calling to that elk as I move in, it's almost a slam dunk to call that bull in. And it's, you know, it has nothing to do with, with calling ability or anything. It's just strictly being able to get close to that elk and have that element of surprise. So I always start out with a cow call, and there's there's a couple reasons, but... When we get set up there, we're 100 yards or so. That bull has no idea we're there. We're able to slip up, get in a good setup. We're on his level. Uh, the caller back behind, you know, 40 yards, 60 yards, whatever the, the train dictates is a, is a good distance. The caller lets out a cow call, one or two cow calls. That bull's already responded to the bugles. We know he's vocal. If you let out a cow call 100 yards away from him and he has no idea there's an elk there, the chances of him responding to that are, are really, really high. And he may have cows, he may be not interested in cows, but he'll still usually respond. They're, they're a vocal herd animal. And when he responds, you can usually tell, you know, was that kind of a weak bugle, not really interested in cows, or did he just scream and can I hear him charging down the hill? Well, if he's charging down the hill and coming to those cow calls, that's all I need to give him. There's no need to, to alert him or make him think there's a bigger bull there that's going to beat him up. If he's coming to that cow call, keep him coming with cow calls. What I typically find, though, is when they come into cow calls, they don't come charging in usually. It's usually, you know, I'll come a little ways, but I want you to come to me. I'm the bull. You know, you're, you're there by yourself. So after one or two of those exchanges, that's when we usually change gears and say, all right, now we're going we're gonna to appeal to his emotion to want to fight and that testosterone that's been building up for the last 30 days. And so the caller's back behind. He gives that cow call. 
when that bull responds, then the caller hits him, just hammers him with a challenge bugle. And the challenge bugle, you, know, you, you can call it any name you want to, but it's you're, you want to make sure that bull knows that you're mad and you're wanting him to fight. And so you just put that emotion into the bugle. You, know, you just scream at him through the bugle. And, and and is the caller, Corey, are you doing that right at the bull or are you directional blowing it away from the bull? So if I if I am hunting with a partner and I have a caller back behind, say I'm say I'm the caller and Dirk's out in front shooting, I'm pointing it right at the bull. I want it as loud and as nasty as I can make it. And that bull, he he's gonna be able he can pinpoint within a couple inches of where that sound's coming from, and that's totally fine, because he's coming into me as the caller, the shooter's out front. And when that bull comes in, he's focused on me and not on on that shooter that's 60 yards out in front of me. And so, I'm, so give give me an example of your challenge uh, bugle. Uh, let me hear exactly. So you you've slipped up on this bench. You, your your shooter's out in front. He's given you time. You know right where he is. He's he's responded kind of soft. You know just kind of to your cow calls. But you're going to hammer him right away with the challenge bugle. Let me hear it. So a couple of keys that I want to I want to stress before I make the the actual bugle. Uh, the reason we start with the cow call is because I want to respond to that bull. So I want to I want to respond to him with a challenge. If I start off with a bugle, that gives him a chance to say you're too close to me, and he can give me the challenge. And if he gives me the challenge, he's expecting me to come into him. If I can cow call and get him to respond to that cow call. And then I can issue the challenge to him. I've put the ball in his court and said, you know, this is my cow you just talked to. If you really want to hang out with her, you need to come down here and fight about this. And by the way, I think you're an idiot. You know, I, I, right. I've got to put that emotion. You're insulting him, right? I've got you're... to put that emotion in there and let him know exactly what I'm trying to tell him. If I hit him with one of the standard, do, 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 you know, the, the regular yeah. old bugles that 90% of the time you hear from other hunters out there, it's not going to mean anything to him. It's it's that emotion. And so is this call is also the call that you're trying to give him is a dominance. You're saying, buddy, you're bugling in my turf. You need to get your business out of here. You you're you're saying I'm the dominant bull to him, right? You know, I, yeah, in a, in a degree, I guess I'm not in my mind thinking I'm the dominant bull. It's I'm the mad bull. He's talked to okay. my girlfriend okay. that I'm there with. And, you know, it's it's not cool what he just said to her, and he talked to her with disrespect, and so I'm letting him know that that's not okay, and, and I think he's an idiot. You know, I just, I think back, I had some roommates in college that were always getting in fights <laughs> and stuff, and I always think about, you know, what they did, and it's because they were always running their mouths, you know, that's, it was, yeah. I was always the quiet guy that sat back there and, and didn't look for conflict, but when it comes to elk hunting, I'm looking for conflict, and so I, I just follow their example of, you've got to let that person know that, and so just to be clear on exactly what you're saying, you're not exactly saying you want to be the dominant bull. What you're saying is you want to be the cocky bull that's going to run his mouth off and say, you're in my turf. But you also, as cocky as that may be, you may be a subdominant bull, but you're just lippy. Absolutely. You're, just, you're just a cocky and you're trying to get that other bull to say, well, that's all you got. I'm coming up there and I'm going to whip you. Not you don't want to overpower the bull so much that he's like, "Golly, that guy sounds like a monster." I'm not <laughs> going to go. You want more of just a, a emotional like, you know, pop off, you know, cocky type of a response, right? In in a way, yeah, I guess it's it's more of you don't want to sound like like Marty McFly when you bugle, you know, "Gosh, Biff, right. you, you sure sound big up there." It's, you know, I want to hit him and say, you just talked to my girlfriend, and I don't care if I'm 140 pounds soaking wet and you're 240 pounds, you know, speaking from human-to-human yeah. -human interaction there, you talk to her, and I'm going to tell you exactly what I think about that. And so I put that, it's not necessarily a cocky, it's just more, you've crossed the line and now I'm mad, and you're going to hear that, that anger in my voice and, and know exactly what I'm saying. Sure. And, and I don't mind if I sound like the biggest, baddest bull out there, the, the elk... I really don't think that you can scare an elk away with a bugle if it's done with emotion. Um, you, and, you know, when they're at 100 yards, they've just talked to this girl. They think she's all alone, and they're thinking, this is an easy one to add to my harem. And then all of a sudden, there's a bull right there. They're embarrassed. They're immediately caught off guard. The bull's close to them in their, in their red zone, in their territory. And 
they're filled with testosterone. It's a natural reaction for an elk to want to just fight. And you see it all the time when the elk come in. Well, not all the time, but you see it when an elk comes in with that fight in his eye slobbering out of his mouth. He's, you know, eyes are rolled back. All you can see is the whites of his eyes. He comes in breathing heavy and growling and, you know, whimpering under his under his breath. And I've had spikes do that. And so it's it's not necessarily a matter of, you know, overpowering or underpowering or making them think you're a subdominant bull that's getting mouthy. It's just triggering that that emotional response in them that I think is a natural response they all have regardless of, of how big they are. Okay. Let's hear it. So this is a challenge, Bugle. And the key to it is it's short, it's aggressive, and then it hits that high, shrill note that just, you know, it it's the note that you'd think would break a, a glass in the house when you hit it. And this is what it sounds like. And it's just, you know, you put that emotion, I don't know if it, it probably doesn't come through the microphone quite as well, but it's, uh, it's not a pretty bugle. I'm not trying to, to win any contest. I'm just trying to display that emotion to that elk. And so you fire that at him. And if his response is fire right back, you're basically going, here he comes. I'll fire right back at him. I mean, there, there have been times exactly, you know, that the, the turkeys sometimes do the double gobble or whatever. When an elk, when I cow call, he answers that. I hammer him with that challenge bugle. Sometimes he will fire right back with an aggressive challenge bugle. I'll fire right back at him. So there will be four or five bugles there in a 30 or 40 second span back and forth that's that's the argument that's the fight that i'm looking for because he is he he gets the emotion he knows what i'm trying to say instantly that's awesome stuff um that's awesome stuff now and, and talk one key, to me one key jay i want to mention on that is it's not going to work from 400 yards it's sure. it's got to be in the face it'd be the same as being you know across the field and and yelling at another person versus being up in their face and yell at them. When you're up in their face and yell at them, it's, they, it's going to They only have cuffs. two responses. Yeah. yeah. They, they either have to jump all over you or they, or they retreat. And if they retreat, everybody around goes, dude, you, you just retreated. So 90% of the time, they're not going to retreat. They're going to, they're going to come forward. Yeah. Um, now tell me about your calling, um, in Arizona, using those same aggressive tactics, because uh, there's, you know, there's all sorts of styles out there. When you took these aggressive tactics to Utah and Arizona and some of these other states, did you have every bit as much success, or exactly the same, or less? <laughs> uh, you put me on the spot now. It's uh, it's amazing how. Elk are different animals on different days in different locations, and you've got to find that right elk, no matter if you're hunting, you know, a heavily hunted over-the-counter public land area in, you know, Idaho or Wyoming or Montana where there's all sorts of predators, the elk are on edge and they're, they're not as vocal, or if you're hunting, you know, a place where it's, it's really limited and the elk, there's there's not as much competition from hunters, but from other bulls, there's a lot of competition. So the, the dynamics of the herd changes the way that the elk respond to bugles and cow calls. If you're in an area where there's a bunch of bulls and no cows, you throw out some cow calls, you're going to get a lot more response from bulls. If you go in an area where there's a bunch of bulls and you're hearing 20 or 25 different bulls bugling in a morning, you throw out your bugle, it's not going to be as effective. But to, to answer your question directly, in Arizona, it took us a little while to, to figure that out, that, hey, there's a lot of bugling here. We'd get up on a ridge, and there'd be six bulls bugling. We'd throw out a, a location bugle, and they wouldn't directly respond to us. You know, they would go quiet for a minute or two, and then pretty soon they'd get back into their bugling routine. And so that really helped us, you know, kind of uh, more precisely hone in what we were doing, and it all comes down to getting close to that bull and engaging in a one-on-one -on -one conversation and, and in Arizona, if we were able to get in close and make sure that this bull knew that we were coming after him, that we were pressuring him, that we were, we were wanting to have this conversation and, and our anger was directed straight at him, uh, it, 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 it took us three or four days. But once we got that, that nailed down, the bull started responding a lot more. But we had to get close. And we had some – we called in a bull on film that 
Uh, I believe it was shot the next year during the rifle season in that unit, and it scored 417. Um, we guessed it, you know, in that, that magic number mark, which I'm not huge on field judging elk or, or scores or anything, but it was a big, big bull. And we were in there before they got, before they were, you know, the big herd bulls had their cows and got down there, and he was very vocal. He was bugling down in the bottom, and we moved about halfway down there and gave him a couple of cow calls, and he bugled and hit him with the challenge. And that bull came running up the hill, meaning business. So, you know, big bull, everyone says you can't call in the herd bulls. Well, once they get their cows, yeah, it can be more difficult. But but uh, don't you think, Corey, it's a function of maybe they're not in tight enough, one, and two, maybe their bugle needs a little work. I mean, I heard you say earlier that it doesn't really matter what you sound like, but the reality is if you're not in tight enough and you're not challenging that bull specifically, uh, that could be one factor, but two, you could also not be good enough on your bugle and potentially be giving yourself away as maybe not a real elk. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's there, there's two two ways to look at it. There, one is getting in close. If you give the the best sounding bugle in the world and you sound just like a really mad elk, but you do it from 400 yards away, it's not going to be as effective. So getting in close is the key. On the flip side, if you get in close and you give the Marty McFly bugle, which doesn't say anything other than, gosh, I sure like to be here with you, Biff. And, you know, I just it's that's actually a phenomenal analogy. And I haven't heard that. And it it puts it perfectly in perspective. Um, I mean, it just nails it. If you're giving them the Marty McFly, they're almost like, dude, I'm not even going to give that a response yeah Yeah. what are you trying to say and it really my dad it goes back to to when i was in college actually i've i've videoed my hunts since i was in high school not necessarily videoed the hunts but just loved having a video camera to to video an elk as it was coming in or as it was going away most of the time it turned out but my dad would come home from outfitting and, and at that time he was outfitting in oregon and oregon season usually got done around the 25th 26th of september and idaho was around the 30th of september so he'd get home with two or three days in the season and uh, after school, we'd run out in the evenings and hunt. And he got home, and I was so excited to show him this video I had of this bull that I'd, in my mind, called in during September. And the bull steps out on the edge of a clear cut, you know, probably three, maybe three to 400 yards away. And I bugle the bull answers, and as he answers, he steps out. So I turn on the video camera, and I'm there. And I video this interaction that the bull and I have for probably 20 or 30 minutes and I would bugle, you know, just this perfect contest bugle. Just sounded really pretty. And the bull would feed along this old skid road, and he'd stop and look my direction, and he'd let out a really pretty bugle, and then he'd go back to feeding. And I'd wait two or three minutes, and I'd hit him with another bugle, and I was just waiting for him to cut loose and come running in. And this went on for, you know, that 20 or 30 minutes, and pretty soon he turned and walked back the way he'd came and out of sight. And so I showed the footage to my dad, and after two or three minutes, he turned to me and he said, What are you doing? And I said, what, what do you mean what I'm doing? I'm trying to call in this bull. And he's like, well, what are you, how are you trying to call him in? What are you telling him? What are you, why would he want to come in? I said, yeah. well, he wants to come in because I'm bugling at him. You know, it's, my bugle sounds great. Why wouldn't he want to come in? And he said, you've got to tell him something. You've got to give him a reason to come in. And he's like, you sound really pretty, but you aren't giving that bull any reason in the world to come in. And he didn't come in. And from that point, you know, it started making me think, what would it take to get a bull to come in and, uh, you know, it's either the the fight or the breeding motion, and so that's what we that's what we go on now. That's awesome stuff. That that's great stuff. Uh, Corey, tell me about uh, your mouth calls and maybe some of the tricks as far as you know storing your calls. Talk to me about the shelf life of calls. I know you know sometimes from year to year you you know. Sometimes I have calls that say one year don't sound good. I leave them in a little plastic bag and I pull them out a year later and boom, they, there's a couple that sound really good out of the bag. Um, and, and maybe some of the tricks um, on, on how you keep your calls, uh, you know, do you start with one diaphragm and, and it works all season long? Uh, do they tend to wear out, you know, after a week or so? Do you always keep you know, four or five calls tuned up and kind of ready to, to jump into the starting lineup. Can you walk me through some of some of your technique there? Yeah, definitely. So when it comes to, to elk calls, I prefer a diaphragm. You know, there's external mouthpieces, there's open reed cow calls, there, there's a lot of different options. But 
especially for an archery hunter, having hands-free access to be able to make a cow call or a bugle or anything at any time is really important, plus the realism that comes from, from a diaphragm if you practice with it and, and can get good with it. I really prefer a diaphragm. So with that, there's, there's a lot that goes into the manufacturing of a diaphragm that sometimes a consumer doesn't see as they go to a store and they look and there's a hundred different diaphragms to choose from. It may not come across that, hey, there really are differences in some of these. And so, you know, whether it's a light latex, a thicker latex, whether it's stretched tightly or loose, you know, that's going to really play into to the sounds that you're able to make. And uh, it's also going to play into how well they last. So if you get a, a diaphragm that has a really thin latex and is really softly stretched, you're going to blow that thing out in, you know, no time, a, a day or two of hard bugling, and it might blow out. And it has nothing to do with quality of the diaphragm. It's just the the materials that go into to make it. And that would you know, that diaphragm would probably make an excellent cow call. But I like to find a diaphragm that's got, you know, a, a lighter latex with a decent stretch on it because then I can make soft cow calls, but I can still scream a good bugle. And with that, I'm, I'm going through diaphragms probably a little bit more than somebody who uses a thicker latex that's maybe stretched a little tighter because they can really blow on that thing and reef on it a bit and get a little more use out of it. So to make sure that I'm, you know, making sure those diaphragms last as long as possible. It's important to store them in a, in a dark place so you know they make the little, I don't know, coin purse looking uh, call holders that are really nice because it keeps them in a dark place. It allows them to evaporate any moisture that's on them so that you take them out of your mouth, they're wet. If that moisture stays on them, the saliva sits there and it'll break down that latex. So being able to put them in something that breathes so that they can evaporate, get the moisture off of them quickly and uh, keep them out of sunlight. You know, if you throw a diaphragm on the dash of your truck within a day or two in elk season, it's going to be ruined. So for storage, um, short-term storage, uh, just make sure that they're out of direct light. Make sure that they're able to breathe so that moisture gets off of them. For long-term storage, you know, you can you can put them in like a Ziploc bag and put them in the refrigerator, and if, you know they'll, they'll last that way. But I think the key is just making sure that they they dry quickly and that moisture doesn't sit there and deteriorate the, the latex. Have you, have you seen calls? Um, like, have you had the same experience that I have that maybe, you know, one year you, you have, say, a bag of 20 diaphragms and for whatever reason they're just not going to go on the starting lineup and you keep them? Have you seen where the latex breaks down and, and the next year you pull them out? And, man, four or five out of the 20 sound pretty darn good. Um, do you believe that that's just the latex changing and, and breaking down a little bit to a, to a, a where where they actually become where they sound good in your mouth, or do you not have that that same uh, do you not have that same deal that I've found? No, ab absolutely, I do. In fact, they're when I get a diaphragm, they're typically stretched a little bit tighter than how I like them because they'll seed in, they'll break in. That latex will stretch out a little bit and kind of and find its sweet spot. And so, yeah, if you get a new one and it's, it's popping real bad on you in the middle of a cow call or something, um, yeah, if you let it sit for a year, sometimes you go back there and you pick it up and, you know, I'll have it marked as a uh, good bugle or something. I'll put it in. It's like, man, this is a sweet cow call now. And, and I do find that, especially, you know, maybe transitioning the conversation a little bit to competition calling, I'll go through 30 or 40 diaphragms sometimes to find the one that I put the number one on. And when I put number one on a diaphragm, it doesn't get used for seminars. It doesn't get used for calling in the woods. It is the one that is absolutely dialed in that I can hit every time it makes the perfect tone, the perfect pitch. It pops at the right time so that I'm confident that I can make a, a good sounding call with it every time. That one I'll use for a contest. Sometimes I'll get two or three years at the contest using, using that diaphragm. But the other 39 calls that I went through to get that one, I'll go in a bag with an H on it marked for hunting season because they all work great. And it, I don't have to sound perfect during hunting season. I just need to be able to make the sounds. And I definitely notice, like you said, as I go through from year to year and pull out of there, it's like this one's primed for, for getting the number one next year. Now it's not a hunting call anymore because something changed, uh, whether I used it the season before for hunting and got it broke in and now it's it's dialed into where I want it to be or yeah, I mean, it, it's diaphragm, mouth calls, latex. I mean, it's a very finicky thing. And, and, and people out there need to understand, you know, talking with Steve Chappell, talking with guys like yourself, 
Uh, I've had the same uh, type of scenarios where, you know, it on a on a, any given season, you know, I might buy 40 or 50 elk calls at the beginning of the season. And um, I've got little baggies, you know, all over my house. And like you said, I label them. I label them, you know, OK, good, excellent, you know, one, two, threes, you know, whatever. Um, and you know, it's amazing that how sometimes, uh, there's no way to stretch these calls and make them absolutely 100% spot on every time. It's just, there's no way anybody could ever master that. It's just the nature of latex, the thickness, the stretch, everything with it. Call manufacturers obviously do the best they can to be as consistent as they can, but you know, I've had people say, man, I got a diaphragm this year and I just, I don't know what I'm doing. And I say, well, switch calls. Oh, I just bought one. And, and I want to <laughs> say, man, I mean, you know, you know, the, the elk call manufacturers obviously are going to love me, you know, being a proponent of buying, you know, 20, 30, 40 calls. But that's the reality of guys that call a lot. You have to have a lot of mouth calls on hand and you never know when you're number one is going to finally give out and you need to have, you know, two, three, four, five, you know, number one and a half ready to go. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you know, you mentioned there, the manufacturers do the best they can. That latex that, that actually makes the noise comes in a roll and it's different thicknesses. So you can get it, you know, three thousandths thick or six thousandths thickness, you know, whatever the different thicknesses are for the different calls that they make. But there's a tolerance on there. So if you get one that's, you know, it's four thousandths thickness latex plus or minus, you know, two thousandths, well, that's a 50 percent swing in thickness there just from the from the manufacturer of the latex. So you put that in a column. By the time you get to the end of the roll, that that diaphragm at the beginning is a three thousandths thickness. And at the end, it's a five thousandths. There's a huge difference in the sounds and the ability, you know, the ease of use between those two calls, even though they're made from the same roll of latex and, and manufactured the same way. So there is some inconsistencies in the process that are just inevitable. And and like you said, I've had people come up and they're like, I'm a terrible elk caller. And I'm like, well, let me hear you. And so they put their diaphragm in and they, they cow call. And it's, I mean, it's it's horrible. It's it's bad. You feel bad for them. And, you know, but then you, they pull out their diaphragm and you look at it and it's a triple reed turkey call with notches yeah. cut in the end of it. And I'm like, well, you know, you yeah. can't do anything other than make a really good pop with a with a turkey call. There's no way you're going to cow call with it. So you give them a medium latex, single latex call, and they throw it in there, and they rip off a bugle, and they're like, wow, I'm actually a decent caller. I didn't realize I could call that yeah. good. And, 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 I mean, the reality is if you would put that same call that that person was using in your mouth, being an eight-time world champion, you would sound bad too. I mean, so people have to understand that, you know, there's a lot to mouth calls and there's a lot to having the right call for you. And, um, uh, Corey, we're going to have to cut it short here. Not short, but we're going to have to, we, we could talk till, <laughs> you know, the sun comes up, but a week from now, but, um, I want to end by telling me, do you like single read, uh, mouth calls? Uh, you know, what calls do you like the best? What manufacturer, you know, what, what's, you know, what, what style, um, et cetera, uh, and um, tell me kind of what are your go-to calls right now. For sure, yeah. So, you know, a little disclaimer, my dad owns Bugling Bull Game Calls or Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls, so it's uh, there is some bias there, but I've always told him, you better keep making the best elk calls, and, and best elk calls is personal preference, and I'll stress that, that what's best for me may not work for the next 99 guys. And there may be another call that for them is the best call. But for me, I keep telling them, you better, you better stay on top of the game here and build the best elk calls because I'll switch. If there's something better out there, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be using what works best for me. And uh, so far he's, he's been able to keep that uh, pretty dialed in, but I do use my dad's elk calls uh, from bugling bull game calls. I use a single latex. Uh, it's a lighter latex. There's two calls that I really like. Uh, one is the all-star diaphragm. It's the, the neon green one. It's got a black uh, dome on it. And then the other one is one they just came out with last year. It's called the Mistress, and it's a neon pink with kind of a blue dome on it. Both of those are lighter latex, lighter stretch. So out of the package, I can throw it in and make really soft cow calls with it. 
The cow calls might pop just a little bit, but I'll just take and tug the latex a little bit and seed it and uh, and get those really soft, smooth cow calls. But at the same time, I can scream on it. And it's it's all about control. If you're coming from a triple latex turkey call type of thing where you're having to just put all the lung pressure and tongue pressure you you have into trying to change octaves on that, and then you throw in a single light latex diaphragm, you're going to blow it out and not be able to hit that high note. And you'll be like, man, this call's no good. So it, it does take some readjustment to, to calling style. But for me, the versatility in, in those soft cow calls to the screaming bugles is that's uh, those, are, those are the two calls that for me work really well. Awesome. Awesome stuff there. Uh, Corey Jacobson, eight-time world champion elk caller. Uh, great stuff today. Again, you can go to Corey's website, ExtremeElkMagazine.com? ExtremeElk.com or ExtremeElkMagazine.com. Either one will get you there. Okay, and then Facebook. uh, Give me your Facebook. How do they find you on Facebook? Uh, Just Extreme Elk on Facebook. And on Instagram, too. I'm a follower of yours on Instagram. Enjoy the stuff you put up there. I believe it's Extreme Elk. Uh, Either Extreme Uh, Elk, hashtag Extreme Elk, or hashtag Extreme Elk Magazine. Both of them get to us there as well. Awesome stuff. Um, appreciate you being on with us. Uh, I'll have to have you on maybe later in the summer and we can talk about, uh, you know, some more elk calling stuff. I uh, just want to uh, wish you the best of success uh, with your magazine and, and uh, uh, with your hunts coming up. And thanks for being on and, and sharing some time with us here. Jay, sure appreciate it. It's always fun chatting with you and especially when we get to talk elk hunting. All right, buddy. You take care. I'll catch you later. Sounds great. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening to the J. Scott Outdoors Western Big Game Hunting and Fishing Podcast brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and join today.